Hello and welcome to Ideas Don't Bleed, a comics podcast presented by Ashcan Press and featuring Matthew Rosenberg and the Supple Boys, Ethan S. Parker and Griffin Sheridan. This is part two of our discussion with Rom V. We hope you enjoy. In my time at Marvel, I think the the best, some of the best advice I ever got was Tom Brevoort, who is, you know, their executive editor and, and just a, an amazing editor and someone who knows comics so well. And he would just constantly tell writers stop making comics about comics like you're making stories that are about other stories like it it becomes stagnant and we're, we're getting yeah. you know creating an ouroboros of of captain america where he's just eating his own tail over and over and i feel like there's so much in comics that is that that's comics about comics even in indie comics where you're like well this is actually just a riff on this other thing and this is a mm-hmm. you know a, an interpretation of this and uh i'm sort of intrigued by your stuff because it it never feels like that it never i never feel like oh he's riffing on something i've seen before you're mm-hmm. you're bringing a lot of things from outside comics in it feels like um is that is that something that you feel cognizant of when you work on something that like i mean to an extent in that i always start with like what can i do that hasn't been done Mm-hmm. Or I always start with like, what can I do that hasn't been done, but is obviously just there, uh, you know, low hanging fruit for the picking, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, I always love talking about this. Um, no one's ever done a snake eyes versus storm shadow, black and white book set in a snowscape. Mm-hmm. What's up with that? No one's ever made that book. Yeah. And exactly. You know, in a in a world where you know Gendy Tart Gendy Tartakovsky's uh, Samurai Jack exists in black and white in a in a snowscape, like yeah, it's right there. No one's done it, and it bothers me. There's like there's like some kind of storytelling slight OCD where I'm like, why is no one <laughs> correcting this? Yeah, yeah. So um, no, I'm not. I'm not. I can't write GI Joe. <laughs> Robert Kirkwin's waiting for your email. Just, uh, <laughs> shoot him that note. So um, that's so that's always been part of how I approach things. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, um, I think in terms of bringing other influences in, I think that's just a matter of someone who didn't grow up reading comics to make comics. Like I. I, I, I literally stopped reading them for the better part of my teenage years. Yeah. Um, and so because I only got back to them as an adult, um, they didn't, they weren't as overwhelming an influence as they might have been had I been reading them throughout. Sure. Um, it's interesting. The I feel like even in your, your creator-owned work, though, there is... Uh, you focus on these things that often I feel like aren't necessarily in the normal 
comics storytelling lexicon, like jazz or uh, cooking or, mm-hmm. you know, graffiti. Like these are things that that people don't really get. We don't get a lot of comics about jazz. Like there's a couple. Um, how much like how much of yourself are you putting into these stories? And obviously, like we all put ourselves in the stories, but like how how much do you draw on your own life in a way that I don't know. I don't know how to phrase this exactly in a way that doesn't sound stupid, but like your influences outside comics, are they drive, are they driving what you're making? Do you feel like more than other people's or do you feel like you're latching on to noticing the smaller things and being like, there isn't a comic about this or are you a really big food guy and a jazz guy and a graffiti guy and you're just like i have to do these stories and it just coincidentally is not well-trod territory i mean it's i'm just naturally an extremely inquisitive person Mm -hmm. so if i see something and it catches my attention um my natural personality is to become obsessed with it for x period of time Mm-hmm. And then once that's done, it's like, ah, oh, I can't stand it. I'm I'm moving on to something else. So some of these books were certainly that. Um, the, graf- the graffiti influence was from going to a talk about graffiti. Um, Tom Eaton, I think, was the artist who was giving this talk at, at the London Design Festival. Mm-hmm. And when he started talking about it, he went to the history of where it started popping up first, where it became part of contemporary conversation with like graffiti in in the New York subway. And it became this sign of protest. And the whole time I'm listening to that talk, my brain's just going, I've seen so much graffiti in India, but, and it, and it is its own aesthetic and it has nothing to do with New York. You know, most people doing graffiti in India um, haven't really been to New York, haven't really seen those. So then my brain went, what, Okay, so there's this natural need to do art mm-hmm. uh, in this in this form, which has the same underlying motivation of I am someone who is not permitted to make art in yeah. your society, and therefore I will. Mm-hmm. And so once you notice it, you will know that I exist. I think that is the sentiment that I caught on to. And then from there, the story... Uh, sort of came up. So I wasn't really interested in graffiti before then, but because I was interested in, you know, art in India, I was looking at them. I was, Uh you know, seeing the stuff that people write on walls. And um, so I think that goes to like just a general tendency. I think a lot of writers have, which Uh is to be this kind of sponge uh, for, for things around you. Like, I would always go to like weird parties and I'd get an invite. I'd be like, yeah, I'm going. Mm-hmm. And then I would never participate. I'd just be the guy sat in like a corner drinking my usual drink, watching other people. Sure. Um, and I always felt like, why is that? That's so weird. Like I don't actually hang out with the people who invite me to stuff. Yeah. Um, and then I realized that that's because I was, I was just wired to watch and absorb rather than participate. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is also another thing fundamental to writing, which is to have this kind of outsider perspective where the, where the writer really doesn't belong. 
but they are watching with fascination and therefore that fascination is transmitted to the to the reader who is also viewing this subject as someone external someone who doesn't really become part of it and i think that's why especially with my work you're noticing that it's not the usual stuff it's not the well-trodden mm -hmm. stuff because it's not usual or well-trodden for for me either yeah it's like that uh that meme of the guy standing in the corner at a party and everyone else is dancing and he's thinking to himself that they don't know that he's thinking about something else while he's at the party anyone know that meme i'm yeah. just talking oh, yeah. about it <laughs> we'll put that yeah we'll that's that rom rom's standing in the corner and the, he's like they don't know that i'm <laughs> analyzing them to further my craft i mean i don't i don't know that i did it with that motivation but i did it enough <laughs> to be able to write about it so yeah that's right the the uh you're making me sound like dr evil yes and then there's another one that's like rom doesn't know that he is analyzing them to further yeah. his craft he's just here to have a good time the uh that's what we're doing oh we're, okay. we're so, analyzing uh, him. look at that wow that's beautiful um <laughs> that's not what we're doing yes i'm sorry that's, that's the quick quiz that's yeah we'll do that later the mm -hmm. um but I'm also the the other thing in your work that's sort of ever present are these these larger themes. And, I, you know, I feel uh, I don't know, it feels goofy to be like you you write about personal things, but also you write about larger themes, because obviously, like, that's what writers do. But I feel like you are someone who is capturing both of these uh, different angles of different ends of storytelling very well you're doing these like intimate personal sort of unique stories that that people are not getting a lot of but you're also telling these broader tales about you know class struggle and colonialism and vampires and these these really important issues that we need to talk about in society yeah. and and you balance that so well and i feel like that actually is sort of uh while this podcast is maybe being idiotic and being like, how do you tell personal stories? How do you make your stories about things? But I think it is something unique to you, not unique to you, but something you excel at that is, is doing both doing, doing the very broad topical thing, but the very personal thing. I, I, I can point to a lot of writers who are very good at doing broad thematic work. And a lot of writers who are very good at doing unique personal stuff, but rarely do you get, both in a writer and like is that something that's intentional to you do you go out and say i want to do a book and i want it to feel you know i want it to be about something that feels very unique and and intimate to me but also about colonialism or also about you know the iniquity of class struggle or or mm -hmm. things like that like how much do you go in trying to get both ends of that spectrum i mean so one of i I would I would define that at least to my process as as one of the one of the things you're talking about, which is the larger, bigger thing, is is the thematic idea behind the story, mm -hmm. and the other thing you're talking about, which is the intimacy, the the character work. Well, that's just the craft of the story. Like that, you need that. I think almost regardless of what kind of story you're telling. I don't know that I would appreciate a story that was just about 
big stuff that didn't have, sure, you know, enough intimacy with a character that I'm interested in following, right? So, um, and this is the the reason I put it that way is this is something um, Alex Pacnadel and I get into quite a lot. Like mm-hmm. Alex is someone who always has the big idea, yeah, um, because the way he looks at the world, he is he is tickled by systems. He's tickled by, yeah. oh, look, here's a group of people reacting to something they cannot see, but I can see that they are reacting to it. Yes. Um, and and so, and I, I think we all have that. We all have that ability to, to sometimes observe a group sure. uh, or an ecosystem and go like, I know what's making it do this. Yeah. Um, but I think the challenge of then taking that concept and turning it into a story is to find an intimate route into telling that story right um so for instance with with these saboteurs which i think is an easy example to take to discuss this um the reason i thought of that story obviously i'd absorbed a lot of indian history and and whatnot before then um but i was watching a tv show called taboo uh, with Tom Hardy in it, where Tom Hardy is a, is a British sailor who uh, gets shipwrecked and, and washes up on the shores of Zimbabwe, I think. Mm-hmm. And then they have that part in the story. And the next part is he comes back and he has cool powers mm-hmm. and he is against the East India Company. And I was like, man, no one ever tells a story of like what happened in Zimbabwe. Yeah, like the the only reason Zimbabwe exists is to give, and I and I kid you not, I've seen scripts from other writers in comics where, literally in the pitch, I've seen it written like our hero goes to brackets exotic location. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I was just like, you know, I I reacted to that. Sure, I thought I thought that was poorly done. Like as a writer. If you're if you're doing brackets exotic location like you know fucking pick up a map, yeah. read, do some read some books you know delve into a little bit of history, and so um, these saboteurs came about because of my need to write that story. What happens when you know your usual milk toast protagonist goes to exotic location, and yeah. what if the exotic location has teeth and bites back? Um, and that's how these saboteurs came about. So, but it still does intimate things because I don't know that I could write a story without having that intimacy with, with its characters. Sure. So, um, once the idea is there almost, I would say the, the, the real test of whether you have a good story or not is if you could tell your story or at least you know, condense your story or pitch it, if you will, and not mention a single sci-fi fantasy alt history element at all. Yeah. If you cannot do that, then I would question if you actually have a story that people will follow and engage with, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, like, Arrival is a story of a mom trying to contend with her child's death yeah. and her past. Um Yes, it's got aliens. Yes, it's got big. It's got dead yeah. evil no, doing aliens. But and and you know, so so you could go on and on about all of the great your know, big sci-fi fantasy epics and find a way to condense them into interesting character-driven plots. Um, yeah, 
Lord of the Rings is a really, really, really long walk. It's <laughs> true. It's a lot of pages yeah, back, backpacking through New Zealand. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, genu- genuinely, it is. This is a journey of self-discovery mm-hmm. of someone who thinks he's too small for this world, backpacking mm-hmm. through it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. We're talking about we're talking about Gollum, right? Yes. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's the, that's the thing. Is so every people... every self-discovery begins with murdering your best friend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the. So I see so many writers and they pitch the thing and they're like some kind of weird swamp water monster guy comes out and I'm like, do the research, figure out who he is. Let's spend some time with him. Does he like potatoes? Does he like yeah, fish? Yeah. Does he like yeah. potatoes? Yeah. Um, he does. Okay. <laughs> Spoiler, okay, he does. Um, no, I, I, I'm fascinated by this. Uh, the the mention of Alex Pagnadel is funny because I feel like he, you and me, uh, I feel like we approach a lot of things very differently and uh but obviously alex is a, a connective tissue in our our yeah. friendship and um uh, i was just talking to alex recently about an idea he had for a story and i couldn't wrap my brain or like he was coming to me so early with it and we start at such opposite ends of a spectrum of storytelling yeah. that I couldn't, I was like, I don't understand what you're telling me. And I just like kept being like, I don't get it. I don't get it. And then I, I said to him, I was like, you need to, I was like, I build everything from a sentence. I build everything from, you know, a single piece of clay and I add to it and I add to it. And I was like, and you start with the big marble block and you chisel yeah. down and yeah. you just wield a marble block into my room. And I'm like, that's just a big rock i don't know what you're showing me and then i talked to him about it for a long time and i was like oh it's brilliant like this is a brilliant story like you have something that's so great your analogy is perfect like every sculptor ideally when they look at the rock yeah also see the final product yeah they also see the shape of their sculpture within it and and when someone comes to you and they're like here's a marble block i think you're doing absolutely the right thing which is to go Okay, but what do you see in it? Yeah, yeah. And and forcing that person to sort of contend with that, um, because then you have to talk about character and emotion and nuance and sure, yeah. And I, you know, I I'm just fascinated by. Uh, I don't know. I I sort of assumed, and maybe this is, <clears throat> maybe this is not naive of me, but because. Um, you're in a you're in a writing studio with Alex and Dan Waters and Ryan O'Sullivan. Um, you guys all work together and um, bounce ideas off each other. And I I feel like there is while you all write very differently, I feel like there you guys have a, a commonality of these these very big high concepts, these grand ideas in a lot of your work. That um, again, I feel like a lot of American uh, American comics writers don't don't speak exactly the same language and that stuff and so i thought in in reading your work that you would be more like an alex like wheeling in the marble stone and and chiseling it but but you you're talking about finding the heart of it first and and building that out and i think that's fascinating because i mean the process is exactly that for me which is i have the marble block and Uh i chisel it but then before I touch the chisel, I must see within it the sculpture. Otherwise, yeah, you know, I'm starting. Otherwise, I'm bound to go wrong. Um, it's almost like, okay, that's the block I'm using. 
now I'm going to walk away. I'm going to put that away and figure out what I want to make with it. So it's mm -hmm. almost like there, there are two starting points. I've had this big idea. I get very excited. And then I just let it sit for like six months while the idea does nothing. Yeah. I'm just building out a much more intimate character driven story that exists within that idea. In fact, to a point where I don't necessarily know that I resolve the idea or rather I don't necessarily know that I have anything to say about the bigger picture idea. I think it's more interesting to have the characters present questions and angles that people may not have considered when coming to an idea. Mm -hmm. And I always find it interesting to let people draw their own conclusions. Sure. Like it, almost like a thought experiment with these saboteurs, the number of people who were not Indian, not from a non-European or American reader's point of view, the number of people who were American or European who came to me and they were like, oh, that was a great bait and switch where you had uh -huh. the white protagonist from London coming to India that we thought we were going to follow this guy. Yeah. And then it turned into something else. That was great. And everyone else was like, what are they talking about? You literally put your main protagonist on page one, scene one of the book. Yeah. Why did they, why did they assume that was not the protagonist? And I think, at no point did I ever confirm or deny whether, you know, who the protagonist is or whether it was a bait and switch, but I find that fascinating. Like sure. if you create the right environment, people will complete your bigger picture idea. The bigger picture idea is the easier stuff. Yeah. Um, telling your story within that is the harder stuff, which is why it's almost easy to come up with big picture ideas, but yeah. the real work is in telling the intimate story. How how often in your work do you find yourself partway in it, halfway through it, or even completed it, and and find yourself surprised by by what's in it, by what you're talking about, by what the themes are? Like, is that a common thing for you? Yes, I, I to a point where I don't, I will necessarily not outline anything beyond the midpoint huh. or a little bit past the midpoint of a story, even though I know what ending I want to get to at the sure. beginning of the story. Uh, you know, I somehow have, I have some concept of what the ending should do. Mm -hmm. I will never actually write it down because once you write it down, like it's there yeah. and it's solid and it's, it's, you have to like physically do stuff to change it. Whereas if it's not written, it can be whatever it wants to be when I get there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've always found that that is, much more freeing for you to do interesting things with when you get to and and i sincerely believe that if you have done the groundwork for telling an intimate story and yet tying it to your bigger picture idea there's always a point in that you get to in a story where you're like i see i see the bigger picture now all the threads tie in all the all the tangents make sense because this is the pattern if you will and i think that's because human beings are wired to look for patterns in, in everything that mm. that they take in um and so because it's like that that's almost the part where where i get really excited about the story because i'm like okay this works because i got to the point where 
I saw I saw the bigger picture. Yeah. Um it's it's funny because I I I think about your work and I I feel like you constantly are surprising readers with what you're talking about and and new ideas and and keeping things fresh. And then you land on something like Venom and Carnage uh where even I who've known you for years was like what the fuck is he doing? <laughs> like, it, it, but, but like, that's sort of what you're always doing is like trying to try new things and try on new stories. And you, you don't have a lot of books that I'd be like, yeah, this book is very similar to this book. I feel like there are similar themes sometimes, but like yeah. the books feel very uh, disparate. And so working with, you know, symbiotes like sort of fits into that, but was that the idea for you of like, what could I do that would keep people guessing and, or what can I do that feels like it's not me or do you really just like drippy Spider-Man costumes or what's the, <laughs> what's the deal? I mean, with, with Venom, the attraction was doing like weird time travel stuff with Al uh-huh. um, and also telling a much more intimate story with Dylan in that this was someone who was, trying to find his father through through their shared experiences though now he was we- he was wearing his father's clothes if you will mm-hmm. um, but I am not sure how much of that intent actually makes it out into the comic because I think I can say this now I think safely the symbiote corner is the place that I've encountered in comics that has been the most that has had the most amount of inertia to change mm-hmm. the most amount of, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get what you're doing, but we still have to do the same things we were doing, you know, five, six, uh, seven years ago. Interesting. Um, yeah. and so, but it's also an environment that I eventually kind of felt like this is not really my vibe. Uh-huh. Um, and it's part of the reason I, I left those books is I went, I, I'm not having fun doing this because I keep having to write to your tastes and not my tastes. Yeah. Um, so if you if you actually read Carnage, I think that one is a clearer indicator of what happens there, where it starts off being exactly the kind of take that I would do, mm-hmm. which is it's actually a serial killer story uh, where the serial killer is trying to audition to be Carnage's next host. And the story really is driven by tension between a police officer who will do anything to catch a serial killer and a serial killer who will do anything to be recognized by senpai. Um, and, and so that's where it starts. But then there are these pressures of like, right, we have to bring him to another corner of the Marvel universe. We have to have him interact with some big one. And um, in hindsight, I would probably go, this is what I want to do. And unless you're willing to allow me to do it in entirety like this and have every part of the book speak to that angle and direction, mm-hmm. um, I'm probably not the right guy to do this book. Yeah. Uh, would have been would have been the good take. Because I did initially, when we were talking about that book, I was like, really me on symbiotes? Uh, and the response I got was like, yeah, because we want you to do a new take. We want you to do you. Yeah. Um, and 
at one point I had this huge manifesto. Um, I had a PDF with like, this is how the new cover should look. This is how we should, you know, frame the story. This is the aesthetic. This is how the lettering should change. And that just got summarily ignored. And we had the <laughs> same sort of 90s metal vibe covers that have been, and, and I imagine sure. because they do really well and they sell really well. Of course. Et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, so, so, but beyond a point, like, I can't care about that stuff because mm -hmm. I care about my take. And that's the only reason I sit down in front of a computer and type. Yeah. I thought that your, like, collaboration with Al was so interesting. Like, that that formatting of kind of handing the thing back and forth and sort of telling yeah. the different sides of the same story. Like, Griffin and I are co-writing a book, and we talk to a lot of guests about co-writing and, and how weird that process can be and the different approaches to it and stuff. Like, was that side of all of that gratifying is that something you yes. do again that because that, brought, I mean, that, brought, like, that was so striking to me right now yeah. right um i'm actually doing quite a few projects that are interestingly co-written right um i mean i feel like i can spoil this i've got a book coming out an image early next year um and then Dan Waters has another book coming out at Image early mm -hmm. next year. Mm -hmm. And these two books are, you know, in conversation with each other. And, oh, read them. and ideally, if you read them both, you get three stories rather than two. Wow. Or you get a single story that has three, <laughs> three views to it. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that kind of formalist stuff has always interested me, always excited me. I think that's part mm -hmm. of part of my taste in novels as well. I love Paul Auster because he's such a formalist, such a postmodernist writer. Yeah. So, um, and I feel like, hey, that's a thing that's not been done in comics. Mm -hmm. Certainly not in any way that, that uses the ability or uses the medium in interesting ways for it. Um, and I think that collaboration is born out of working with Alan, like, wait, we can do time travel stuff in this interesting way. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that so, you know, the first reason I was attracted to that project was because oh, cool, I'm going to be working with Al. Right. Um, and yeah, and that part was very gratifying, very energizing, we Al and I would sit down at conventions or, you know, post conventions and in Leeds which is not a very uh, exciting place to be post-convention. <laughs> but Al and I are like grabbing a Coke, drinking some alcohol, got some burgers, and we're just talking. We're just riffing off of like, oh, what if we do this in issue 10? And I take that and I do this in 12, but you don't refer to it until you get to 15. So that kind of stuff was quite exciting, yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um. Switching gears before we wrap it up, I wanted to talk about uh, your new book, Rare Flavors, which is coming out soon or depending on when this airs. It's, is coming, out, it's coming out in September of 2023. Yeah, so, so this came out this came out years ago. This is yeah, <laughs> this, this is already collected. This is an omnibus, yeah. the, the animated film. Uh <laughs> it, it's out. Um the toys uh have already 
poison little kids. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, no, it goes bad. It's a dark future for this book. I'm no, sorry. All toys do that. By yeah, way. yeah, it's not, yeah. We we only find that out in 2024. <laughs> but all toys are killing children. Um, first of all, uh, kudos to you on uh, spelling flavors that way. Uh, a lot of respect for Brink coming to uh, you know the American comic book market and just putting use in places they don't need to be. Um, yeah. We, we love it. We have a lot, I have a lot of respect for it. It's going to be a hard path for you. You're going to get a lot of people telling you at comic conventions that you misspelled the title of your book. Um, but you That's enjoy okay. it. That's okay. I wrote it. I've written entire books with that kind of misspelling before. You so. have. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, what's the book about? Let's just do the general. What, what is it? The book is about, Indian food. Uh, the concept is, I guess I'm, I'm spoiling it, but because this won't be out before the book releases, I guess I can spoil it. Um, in Indian mythology, there is a demon called Bakasur, whose whole claim to fame is that he would terrorize the villages nearby and demand tribute. So each month they would have to drive cartloads of food to his lair where he would consume exorbitant amounts of food and then consume the people who brought him the food as well. Um, until the great Indian hero Bhim, who was the strongest of the five brothers who were part of Indian epic called Mahabharata, shows up and like defeats this demon and Bane style, like breaks his back. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, all the people celebrate and there's peace and prosperity in the land. Um, in our comic, this demon has lived through to the present day and has been hiding away in a small tourist town in India where he works as a chef uh, in, a, in a little cafe mm -hmm. that sells pastries. Um, and he learns that He's, and he's done this because he's like, okay, cool. I need to stay away from people because, you know, I have tendencies. So I'm just going to be here. Um, but his window into the world is watching Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown. Um, mm -hmm. And then he reads in a newspaper that Anthony Bourdain has passed away. And he goes, look at this guy. Look at this mortal who has lived a shorter lifetime than most. And yet has done work that affects me and I've lived for millennia and I have done nothing of value. Uh, people look at me and think of me as a brute who had his back broken because he couldn't stop from eating everything <laughs> in sight. Um, and so he's like, I'm going to leave this place, go out and make a documentary about Indian food about its origins, about where it comes from. So he goes out, he hires a sort of loser, down and out filmmaker, and he says, look, I'm gonna give you all the money and you're gonna follow me around and we're gonna make this documentary and we're gonna sell it to Netflix and it's gonna be great. Um, and yeah, that's that's the concept, that's the story. Obviously. Of course, about halfway through, you realize when he reviews the food at the end of each issue he's reviewing the people not the food mm -hmm. obviously love it. this is a story we've all seen a lot 
before. Right. This is, uh, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's well, well-worn territory. I'm so annoyed um, that this isn't out kind of a... yet. I'm jealous of the people <laughs> listening to this because they've gotten to read this. Uh, I, have, I have a real soft spot for that. Uh, Anthony Bourdain used to be my neighbor, my upstairs neighbor. All right. Uh, um, years ago. And uh, I, I uh, always like uh, the sort of... Uh, uh, I want to say mythologizing of his legacy, but it's not, it's, it's sort of inverse mythologizing because it's like the humanizing of him in a way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I always like that because my whole experience with him is like, he's the guy who's drinking in my lobby and at (laughs) three in the morning when I come home and it's always like, Hey, come sit down, have a drink. And I go, no, I'm straight edge. I stayed in the same LA bungalow that he shot an episode of oh, yeah. Parts Unknown in, where he's like, I love this bungalow because I come to LA, I hate this town. <laughs> and um, in this bungalow, nobody can tell who's inside. So I'm just here, he's just woken up. He's like, I'm gonna make myself some scrambled eggs. And he makes like really good scrambled eggs, of course. Sure. So I was in that bungalow, I said, like, I gotta make some scrambled eggs. I couldn't I couldn't eventually, but um, that, that was as close as I got. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, uh. Well, the book sounds awesome. I'm very, I'm very, very excited for this one. Uh, ever since it was announced, I was like, "This is." Yeah, it's also like it does again interesting things with the format. Like, um, it's it has recipe. There's a recipe in every issue, but the recipe is not like, and here's a recipe for whatever you read in the issue so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, the recipe is bang in the middle of the story. So there's like a couple of panels that are recipe while the story is going on and then a couple of panels after a couple of pages. Um, and so the idea is that you reading the recipe is part of you reading the story as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're getting to play with ingredients in a recipe versus ingredients in a story and flavors in a recipe versus flavors in a story. There's um, something about comics that are about food. I don't know. It's mm. something really comforting. <laughs> where, where, yeah. do the re- where do the recipes come from? Well, they're they're recipes for authentic, making authentic Indian dishes. Food. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so, did you make all this? Uh, do you do you make all the stuff when you're making the book? Some of the, some of the stuff, yeah. I, some of the others, some of the stuff I've made, some of the stuff I've tasted, some of the stuff I've tasted and liked enough to, like, pester chefs into going like, "How do you make this? Can I come watch?" Yeah. Um, so there's like one of the one of the dishes is like a. a something called ran which is a leg of goat that's slow cooked um over 24 hours before is served as a whole leg and literally like you can push at it with a finger and the meat will fall apart mm-hmm. and it's flavorful and juicy and amazing and it's been cooked the same way it was cooked 400 years ago for Mughal emperors in delhi um and it's the place where i had it was a place in uh, Delhi 6, which is a famous neighborhood mm-hmm. because it was the seat of the Mughal Empire when they were in power in India. And um, you walk through these kind of warrens and tunnels with spice markets and little shops all over the place. And it's like I'm going into some warehouse hellhole that I have no way how to get out of. Surely there is nothing of value to, to be seen here. And then you come to like this little square in the middle of this just 
sharp hell. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, there's like people sat on benches. There's a couple from Germany. There's some people who've come all the way from Portugal to taste this. Yeah, yeah. And there's just like four guys in an oven making like the most amazing leg of goat you've ever had. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, now I want to go there and eat that mm-hmm. and uh, read the book, which by the time this is out, I will have read the book, but I, I have not. But Ram, this was so fun to get to hang out and, sure. and talk about this stuff. And uh, everything you do is always like, I get excited for every project. And uh, I often hear about them before they're announced when we get together and talk. And, yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, and it's always like, I have to wait so long for these books because they, they percolate in your head and then they, they get made. And Yeah, I feel like we talked about some of these back in new york like uh, almost yeah, a year ago almost now. a year yeah. ago yeah um and i'm i'm excited they're they're coming out and i'm excited people get to read them and and yeah this was this was great man pleasure yeah thank you for having me and it's always nice to you know talk shop you don't get to do it often mm, we don't. despite of the fact that i have a i have a writer studio all of my writers friends <laughs> have seen my true colors and moved out of london now so sure they're, 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 they're cowards and uh especially we, we don't have to name names but one of them has moved uh especially far from london and and yeah yeah, yeah no appreciation for that um but yeah this was a blast and and i'm excited uh for everything that's coming up man and thanks so much for taking the time to hang out thanks Ron. Thank thanks Ron. Thank always a pleasure thank you john And that brings us to the end of part two of our discussion with Rom V. Make sure to check out The One Hand, Rare Flavors, and Detective Comics, as well as everything else he's working on by giving him a follow on Twitter at the right Rom. To get the latest episodes of this podcast, as well as news, giveaways, and even comics delivered straight to your inbox, go to ashcanpress.com and sign up for the newsletter. We'll be back next week with another wonderful guest. And in the meantime, you can write to us at ideasdontbleedpod at gmail.com or tweet to Matthew Rosenberg at ashcanpress on Twitter, me at Tales to Astonish, or Griffin at Griff Sheridan. We'll include some of your correspondence on the show, and we'd love to hear what you have to say. And big thanks to Summer People for our theme song, Where's the Poison? Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.